From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work, our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace and maximize their impact around their impact on the world around us all at the same time. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics for today's show with the New York Times gender beat reporter, Susan Shira. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we welcome you to join in the conversation. We're going to be exploring a range of things today from Susan's career progression into this amazing new role to the complicated and powerful dynamic of gender in our society, particularly in the wake of the 2016 presidential election. Share your comments, bring your questions, and tell us, how are you thinking about gender roles these days? Are you seeing them differently than you used to? We'd love to hear from you. That's 1-844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Today's guest, Susan Shearer, is doing what great journalists do. She's asking critical questions with intellectual curiosity, honesty, and a disciplined sense of fairness in order to help all of us better understand the most essential issues in our society today. As the senior correspondent and editor on gender issues for the New York Times, Susan has created their first gender beat, giving all of us a new arena in which we can consider the role of gender in society, whether it's the Bill Cosby trial, Trump's meetings with Putin, or the silencing of women in the Senate. Susan's exploring how all of these issues of power, gender, opportunity, and culture intersect and impact all of us. If you do want to join the conversation, once again, that is 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, and we'd love to have you join in the conversation. So Susan Shearer was named Senior Correspondent and Editor, Gender Issues, in September 2016, after 20 years as an editor and senior executive at the New York Times. She was one of their longest-serving foreign editors, having worked her way up through the organization. I think she, in fact, started in 1981 as a trainee on the Metropolitan Desk. And she went on to serve in a range of roles and departments, both as a reporter and an editor, covering everything from national education to business, and was part of the team that won the 2009 Pulitzer Prize for International Reporting for what was masterful, groundbreaking coverage of America's deepening military and political challenges in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, Susan is also the person who made me ever more proud to pick up the New York Times every day with this column that's been coming out and really shining a light on major issues in our society. So with that, I'd like to say, Susan, thank you for joining us on Women at Work. We're delighted to have you. It's my pleasure, Laura. Thanks for having me. So, Susan, would you tell us the story of how you started the gender beat in the New York Times? Um, Did it come from you? Did it come from the paper? How did this happen? Yes, I'd be delighted. Uh, Really what had happened was in my capacity as an executive, for some time I'd been partnering with our colleagues um, on the business side of the New York Times, looking at our audience who was reading us, who, who did uh, we think we could do a better job reaching. And one of the conclusions that we came to after almost a year-long look at our analytics and talking to our readers and our non-readers is that there was a great hunger um, for discussion of gender and that uh, there was a great sense that women in particular could read us in, in greater numbers, although thankfully we are well-read by women <laughs> as well as men. But, um, and, 
And I should just say that in my own career, I'd had a continuing interest in these issues. I was foreign editor. I love foreign affairs. I've been invested in a lot of my professional life, but I've also um, wrote a book about uh, working motherhood and contemporary ideas about working motherhood. I worked as I raised two children with the enormous assistance of my wonderful husband. And I have always been interested as an editor, too, in bringing out uh, tales of how a whole range of issues affected women. For example, I worked very closely with our colleagues on a, a wonderful look at, um, which ended up winning a Pulitzer, my colleague Alyssa Rubin, about uh, women in Afghanistan and what happened to them in the well-meaning attempt by the Americans to give them greater rights and how that actually provoked a certain backlash domestically. So I've had a continued interest, and then I saw the audience work. And then uh, I had been advocating as an executive for us to step up our coverage of gender. And then there came a moment when um, it became clear to me that, as happens in all organizations, there was succession planning going on at the Times, and a new generation of management folks were being brought into prominent positions. And so I was at a kind of crossroads where I said, if I want to continue as an executive, which I was invited to do, but at a, a slightly... Um, uh, one step lower role, or did I want to think about where I was at this career juncture? And I elected to say to them, look, you know I've been interested in, in gender. How about if I move back into writing and reporting, which is, of course, my original love, and really try to create this line of coverage on gender that we all think is important. And they said, yes, we're game. And so there I was launched. It's fascinating to me on three different levels. One is seeing um, the way that a decision gets made like this in the New York Times. And I think it was Chris Garvin, an outstanding designer that I worked with, who got me to understand the notion that when you're solving multiple problems with one action, there's real power in it. And <laughs> um, yeah. and that the combination of that this was strategic for the New York Times from an audience perspective, um, that there were clearly stories that were being told in through other types of reporting coverage, but not necessarily pulling out these important threads that were about gender um, and your personal interest. That is interesting on its own, but that you found a way to take what could have otherwise been perceived as a negative career impact move by the paper and instead turned it around into something really powerful. Well, I, I, I'm delighted to talk about that because I think it was, I mean, I want to be clear and, and, and uh, you know, I have immense, I've been part of the management team here. I have immense loyalty to the Times and my management colleagues. And, you know, they very much wanted me to stay in my previous role, but it would be slightly redefined because they were recreating a more senior position and putting sort of the next gen person in it. And so I... I really could have stayed doing that, and that would have been fine, but it really felt to me that this was a moment for me to step back and say, what do I want to do now at this point in my life, and what's, what is the most effective way to use my experience and my passions? And, you know, I think these moments are, are hard, obviously. Mm -hmm. they're, they're challenging, but I was grateful that my colleagues let me think it through with them, and we did so in a, in a you know, a fairly um, 
a, a fairly amicable exploratory way together. It, it you know? sounds like it's a testimony to the quality of the relationships and the culture within the paper. I think one thing about the New York Times is that, you know, I've been here, as you said, really my entire professional career. I grew up here. It is much more than a workplace to me. And sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad, <laughs> right? It, it, there are times when that cannot be healthy. And the New York Times inspires a kind of devotion and passion in, in all of us here that sometimes verges on the, you know, crazed and and, and, and immersively, uh, I don't know what the right word is. You know, we, one loses all proportion because we're so proud to work here and we care so much about what we do and we're so fortunate to have that sense of mission. And we've also kind of been forged through fire together. So in that sense, you know, my colleagues and I are close. Um, and so, I do feel that uh, it was great we were able to work something out that worked for all of us. And I would say also if we're talking about kind of career pivot points, I think this is interesting because I don't know if this is true, but I've I've been doing some reporting on uh, a piece that's coming out this weekend, which has to do with why there aren't more women who are CEOs, a very familiar topic to your audience, your, Mm -hmm. your listeners. But one of the interesting observations that several people made when I was exploring this topic with them is that certainly, uh, and this piece will explore it, there are real systemic issues of bias that we have to confront and struggle with. But also, some of the people I talked to said, women more than men seem to be willing in their estimation to kind of make unconventional career moves, to sometimes zag uh, because they were perhaps, and it's arguable, uh, as a group, more willing to consider, well, what's my personal happiness, regardless of status or money, mm-hmm. or, or less, I mean, not utterly regardless, but, you know, that in the assessment of some of these experts who've been watching the corporate world for a long time, more willing, women were willing to say, you know what, I think I'm going to do this different thing, even though the conventional path would be ever upward, whatever the right I'm going to posit two different reasons and you yep. can either and let me know now or I can wait for the article this weekend but um, from the work that I've done I've seen kind of two factors to that one is um, if women are not um, either worried about money because they have their own or um, they're not the primary breadwinner they feel freer to take certain chances and without a societal status about positions of power and the way that rank conveys power and value I think that's really interesting. Um, I would say that that may be the case to some extent, but I particularly looked at the experiences of women who had been in the C-suite and were viable contenders for CEO. And a number of those women were primary breadwinners, um, interestingly enough. In other words, they, their husbands had often made career sacrifices to help support their wife's ascent. That's amazing. Um, That's terrific, and, actually. And in fact, you know, anecdotally, a lot of women who get up very high have husbands who have a less absorbing career if they have families, uh, I'm told by many people. Which has helped them um, get there. Which has helped them get there. So in this particular subset, I don't think it was that they could rely on their husband's income, although I think that's true for the greater subset, perhaps at different path along the, the career ladder. I was talking to uh, your dean at Kellogg, 
um, and uh, Dean Blunt, and she and she was saying that there are various cohorts when women drop out at a certain phase in their career. It's partly because of that. The husbands have the means; they can have the luxury of saying, "I don't want to do that grind," or you know, "I would be more fulfilled doing X or Y." But in the subset I looked at, they had, the women had kind of put their chits on ascending, and they had gotten to a certain point, and then they had to make a decision. And you know. But, Sorry, that correlates with another group that I looked at. I had done a needs analysis that I've talked about on the show before of examining the career paths and growth and needs of our alumni. And another group that I found fascinating were the group of women who early in their career went into very traditional sequential corporate roles into investment banking and consulting uh-huh. and because um, that was the way to enter the business world. And it was the way to move past gender into um, the same success that they saw men having. And for many of them, having had great success on that route, they got to a certain point in their careers where they had a different kind of confidence and opportunity. And they knew that they could do it, but they realized that they had a different power than they had ever imagined to go and create a new thing, to start entrepreneurial ventures or to restart their careers um, in ways that deployed a skill that they had developed along the way, but that was no longer about a sequential path of progress. I think that's fascinating. I'm sure you are far more expertise on this than I do. One of the things that I encountered, though, was I think some women have turned to entrepreneurship because of the barriers that remain in corporate life. Oh, certainly. Um, and, And so part of what I heard was, you know what? I am sick and tired of this. I'm, I <laughs> yeah. am, you know, I, I am, I am experiencing, you know, subtle bias. I am frustrated. I have got the skills, the connections, the networks, and the ability to go on my own where I can control um, my work environment better. And so I'm going to do it. I think at least for some women, that plays a role. Yes, it reminds me of, I don't know how many have seen this, uh, Baby Boom, a movie from the 80s with Diane Keaton, (laughs) where despite the romantic plot lines and Sam Shepard and all of that, she gets to a point that says, if you can bring gourmet baby, country baby national, well, then so can I. And I can do it from Vermont. Exactly. And, you know, I think I admit to some ambivalence about all this, because I think that it's really, really important that um, we women keep trying in the establishment halls of power to crack through that ceiling because it's very important for us to be there. I mean, I'm really happy about entrepreneurial women, too. I don't mean to say not. But I I do believe that it can't be a substitute for, you know, greater representation of women in the most powerful institutions in this country. Oh, certainly not. I'm sure. And what it and. I absolutely agree. And it's also part of there are so many different places in which we need to see women at work in our society. And some of these alternate paths um, are just as important and just as powerful, and they'll have a ripple effect. By the way, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, as I'm sure you could guess by the content, um, here on Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Susan Shira, who's the senior co- correspondent and editor on gender issues for The New York Times. If you have a question about what we're discussing, please give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And I'd love to know, how do you feel about that combination of 
opportunity and responsibility. Um, do we have a responsibility to make our way into the sweet seat if the path is in front of us? Um, how should we navigate those choices on behalf of ourselves and others? And, and Susan, I asked that question to you, too, because I think that's embedded in what we're talking about is, um, you know, how do we grapple ourselves and societally with where we do, where we need to see women and where we don't see women right now? And I think I want to be clear that I would never presume to tell any individual woman or any collective women (laughs) what to do with their lives or what choices they should make. I just mean that I didn't like Baby Boom the movie because (laughs) I thought it was a little bit of a cop-out. You know, I thought it kind of presented it as you can't, it's impossible, Mm. you can't juggle working life and corporate life because it was partly about the baby. And I thought it was a little bit of, I thought it was in some ways a little defeatist. All I mean is I think it can be done and those women who want to do it, you know, should be encouraged and we should make sure that they get the support to do so. Those who don't want to and have other alternatives, God bless. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, certainly. And and for me, you know, I I worked like hell through my child rearing years uh, because I loved my work and I ascended through the corporate hierarchy and I was glad to do so. I mean, it wasn't my primary, you know, my primary uh, motivation was I love my work and I really care about what I'm doing. And I wasn't sitting there plotting um, oh, in five years, I'm going to do this. And in 10 years, I'm going to do that. Although there's nothing wrong with that. Just my own progression was I love this job and it led to another job that I loved. But but I was glad to assume a position of, of power and authority at the New York Times. You know, I essentially for several years ran the daily news operations, deciding what would be on page one and helping assign daily news stories and coming up with ideas. And I was really happy to be part of that discussion. I think I brought something to bear from my experiences and professional background, but also my perspective as a woman and as a mother. Absolutely. And in addition to what this meant for your own growth and development, um, there's a way, and you were talking about this in the beginning when you were talking about the reasons for creating the gender beat, is issues that you wanted to give advocacy to as an editor. Um, Work at the New York Times is more than just a job, and it's more than just a calling. It has a huge impact on the world around us. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are those issues that you wanted to give advocacy to as an editor, and how are you handling them now as a writer again? Yes, I think, I think that, that uh, as an editor, I had a very wide range of, of areas that I thought we, we needed to give a lot of attention to. And, you know, they were very much in sync with my colleagues, but they weren't confined to gender, obviously. I mean, I... I always felt an enormous commitment. The New York Times um, international reporting is a crown jewel. It's something we've always invested in uh, a great deal. And and I've always felt to me that one of my priorities as an editor is to make sure that uh, we were given prominence to things that happened far away that would not (laughs) otherwise be covered or understood by our audience. I I was interested and advocated very strongly for deeper and more subtle coverage of race, um, and was partly among with my colleagues responsible for a lot more intensified uh, discussion of these issues. Uh, I'm interested in a whole range of things, so I don't. And I was able to put my thumb on the scale, you know, at times to make sure that we were on top of these these issues. Uh, in terms of gender, though, I have always felt that it was very important for us to be attuned. For example, I think one of the things that this gender beat does is that it allows me and my colleagues who now know I'm here to discuss 
a lot of angles that, that, that often do get covered. And I want to be clear, the New York Times was already writing about gender in so many ways, and so many of my really talented colleagues do so, from Ellen Barry, who's written extraordinary stories about women in India, and I'm my aforementioned uh, friend and colleague, Alyssa Rubin, and Claire Kane Miller, who writes for The Upshot, and Amanda Hess, who writes for Culture. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are many, many people who are grappling with these issues. I'm not alone. But I think what happens is something happens say, in the health care bill uh, or on the Senate floor, and, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren is silenced. I'm right there to say, this seems familiar, doesn't it? Women? Yes. Haven't we been here before? Let's think about why this happens. I can leap on it in a way that allows me to go to a range of subjects and say, there is an angle here. And, you know, for men, too, and for gender issues. I mean, I could go to an, you know, an exhibition at the Japan Society in New York that looked at, at feudal era Japan and their different ideas of gender. So it, it allows me to kind of accentuate the considerations of what's a topic that's of intense interest and a flashpoint in American society and internationally. So it it just allows a certain concentration, but also a range of topics. I would also posit that it makes um, the coverage greater than the sum of its parts. Um, I read all of the women that you talked about. I'd also add Jessica Bennett to the list. I just love what she does. she's fantastic. Um, And the New York Times has been, I I thought, an outstanding source of regular reporting on gender for decades. Having a gender beat, though, Um, coalesces it into an ongoing dialogue in a way, not unlike what we aspire to do in some ways with the show, is that by focusing on these issues, we, um, we bring them together so we can connect the dots and think about them more holistically. And as a reader, I'm at least doing that with your article, with, with the whole column. And so I'm wondering, um, how much of that is part of your strategy or goal? Or is it something that I just happen to be gleaning from it. Well, I, I do believe that there's an advantage in systematically looking and pouncing on opportunity. I mean, I very much felt, and now we'll go back to the election. You know, mm-hmm. I started this before the election, and I, I felt that, A, it was in the air, and B, we were either looking at the election of the first uh woman for president, or we were looking at the election of a man who has been quite striking in the way that he comments about women. He's his kind of unabashed uh, personification of uh, another era in, in the way that he treats mm-hmm. and discusses women. So either way, we were going to have a fascinating domestic conversation. <laughs> right, because it Let's was one it extreme way. or the other. Right, it really was. And so what I say I think has happened is that since the election, it's caused a renewed focus on where are women? If Hillary Clinton couldn't be elected president, let me just say that I'm not speaking in a partisan way here. Um, I'm speaking because there are so many factors that went into that. Gender is one of them, Mm -hmm. but there were also, you know, there's also foreign interference. There's also uh, the question of economic populism and anti-establishment. So these are very complex, but I think that her loss made a lot of women pause and say, have we come as far as we thought? Is there some kind of visceral reaction against giving women the ultimate power in the United States or 
not. And I've, you know, I've interviewed blue-collar women who voted for President Trump who are quite eloquent in saying, I would vote for women, not this woman. You know, so, and I want to give voice to that sentiment, too. But I think it gave a kind of urgency to this question that may not have been quite to the fore before the election. Without a doubt. By the way, this is Women at Work. I am Laura Zarrow here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111, and I'm talking with Susan Shearer, senior correspondent and editor on gender issues for The New York Times. If you have a question, if you'd like to join the conversation, or tell us how you started to perceive gender in our society after the election and since then, give us a call, 1-844-942-7866. That is, of course, 1-844-WHARTON. So, Susan, part of what What's coming, you know, in the way that you asked those questions and framed those different components, um, we had um, women who just didn't like Hillary. We had men who just didn't like Hillary, who otherwise would have voted for women. But there were was also an issue of comfort with seeing a woman in such a powerful role. That's exactly right. Uh, I spent a lot of time since the election talking to a range of people, including political scientists who study how gender has evidenced itself in politics. And one of the themes that comes up again and again, and it probably your, your, your listeners know, but it's worth restating, is that voter surveys, interviews, academic research again and again has found that women to be elected have to be seen as likable. And it's much harder to be seen as likable if you're also perceived as ambitious. So there is an inherent issue about a kind of discomfort about openly ambitious, assertive women that remains in our society. And, and Hillary Clinton evoked enormous dislike. I mean, it's kind of fascinating to see how much she was hated. And you have to believe that some of that stems from this, you know, observable phenomenon that likability and ambition for women do not go hand in hand. And I think that happens in the corporate sphere as well. Oh, we know it does. And also that we know it was happening across the country because it's an assessment that people were making, not on her as a person, because they worked side by side with her, um, which still happens to women in the corporate sector. Um, But it was based on um, image and media and a dialogue that was going on in media that enhanced that um, polarization of her. You know, I think it's it's very interesting. Uh, I'm 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 sure that there are many legitimate critiques to be made of of, of media coverage. Um, I I think that one thing that was interesting is I think that mainstream media didn't do overtly sexist coverage of Hillary Clinton in the way that was the case maybe when everyone was when she was the first lady and everyone talked about her hair and, <laughs> right. her, and her pantsuits that her dresses or whatever. I, I think though that. What's very interesting is that she became a kind of a a flashpoint. I mean, mm-hmm. people, the, the kind of things that came out at some of the rallies, you know, hang the bitch and lock her up. And, you know, some of this kind of very angry, misogynistic language definitely tapped into something. Yes. That is and- here in the society that's troubling and that's 
out there and that we have to confront. Yes. And we are going to confront more of this when we get back from our break in just a few minutes. Once again, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and we'll be back shortly with Susan Shira, senior correspondent and editor on gender issues for The New York Times. Give us a call, 1-844-WHARTON. We'll be back in a minute. You're listening to Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Laura Zarrow. Welcome back to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Senior Director of Wharton People Analytics, and today we're talking about the New York Times' new gender beat with their astonishing uh, journalist, uh, Susan Shira, Senior Correspondent and Editor on Gender Issues for the New York Times. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And with that, Susan, welcome back to Women at Work. Hi, Laura. Um, Before the break, we were talking um, about Hillary, the election, um, and the pattern that you started to see across the country of um, the difficulty in, in embracing an ambitious woman. You had also mentioned in the first half hour when we were talking about the issues that you tried to advocate for as an editor. Um, particularly bringing to light issues that were not understood or covered um, normally in the newspaper or in, in newspapers across the country or world. And it's something that the New York Times has taken seriously and done well over time. Um, in particular, with the gender beat, I thought you've been doing an amazing job of examining this question of how we treat women. And is was this about Hillary or is this a latent bias, a misogyny that either has always existed or was ignited by this. As you've been exploring this, where are you landing? Who who are we? How are we feeling about this? That is exactly the question that I'm still working through <laughs> and I and I, I you're exactly right. I am trying to understand it. I don't think I know yet. <laughs> uh, maybe I never will know. I what I've really been struck by is I think because in the arc of my own lifetime, you know, I I was in college in the mid to late 1970s. I came into the workplace at a time of enormous excitement, just on the the sort of heels of the of the the second wave of the feminist movement, and I saw a lot of possibility and opportunity for women. I saw a lot of barriers fall. I mean, I was the first woman to be the foreign editor of the New York Times. Nobody blinked an eye. No one even mentioned it. I didn't make a big deal of it. But, you know, it had been run by men forever. And it was, I, I did not feel, I often felt in my career that there was just enormous opportunity and promise and that we were going in a more linear way. And I think that what at least even less the outcome of the election than what what the election brought forth about a lot of misogyny and a lot of anger and resentment. I've been wrestling with that since. I mean, how much resentment is there at what women have achieved? How much can we count on progress toward women continuing and not just powerful women of course, but but women but 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 women from all walks of life, um, all areas gaining better conditions, better opportunities, better economic progress, better, you know, equity in terms of household responsibilities, a whole range of issues that uh, I think our society 
at least we thought there was forward motion. It often it was imperfect, remains imperfect. But I think this election in particular raised the question of, has the progress that women have made run into a lot of latent anger that used to be suppressed and is now more openly expressed? And I'm, I'm still wrestling with that. It certainly feels that way. Yes. And I, be- I really believe that I'm hearing it in a more open way. But there's also a danger of exaggerating it, too. I mean, I recognize that. There's a danger of obsessing about it uh, <laughs> and, and, and you know, not celebrating milestones when we achieve them. Oh, but, of course. But I, I do feel that we have to grapple with this. You know, is, and I am looking to understand it. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting to me, when I talked to, I looked at white women who voted for Donald Trump. Uh, I looked at that very deliberately, and I used the word white women because we looked at this sort of infamous figure, 53% of white women voted right, for Donald Trump. Right, that why Trump. wouldn't white women uh, vote for the other white woman? Right, right. And, and, and so what I think was really interesting about those women, that I, and I spoke with them over time and in great depth, is that many of those women led what you could call a feminist life. I mean, many of them worked Many of them were outspoken. Many of them cared about issues that affected women. They did not see them. I mean, I'm sure that among some voters for Donald Trump, there were women who preferred traditional roles or women who believed that God mandated subordination or a whole bunch of other things. But I think that a lot of women did not fit a stereotype of, oh, you're voting for oppression. Oh, you don't. And so, you know, I had to wrestle with that. It was educational for me. Trying to think through, and, and of course what a lot of the women said to me was, I care about women's rights, and I don't like Donald Trump's behavior or statements or access Hollywood tapes, but I really believe he's going to bring jobs back, and that matters to me a lot more. I really believe that our borders are not safe, and that matters to me a lot more, and so on. And so, you know, I think that one of the jobs of of journalists is to kind of wrestle with complexity and try mm-hmm. to avoid the kind of it's a completely misogynistic world and everyone who voted for Donald Trump wants women, you know, barefoot and pregnant. No. Right. I think um, the catch there is that um, and and you nailed it by saying it, it's not one thing. Um, right. We're a complex com- country and it's a complex set of issues. Um, and something that I actually learned by reading some of your articles was that there is um, – we know that in urban centers with strong economic conditions that um, men tend to be more comfortable with women being ambitious. But we also know that it's in some of those very same centers, like you said, that people voted based on finances and their perception of security. Right. That's right. And so I think that's why it's, that's why it's so interesting, because I do think that, um, you know, the Trump campaign touched on some very powerful currents in American life that perhaps, you know, we've all done a lot of flagellating uh, of ourselves on this, we who live, at least I, who live on the coast. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that there wasn't a good enough appreciation of the depth of economic insecurity and concern, and there wasn't a good enough sense that um, people were really not willing to say, okay, globalization is fine, and okay, jobs migrating elsewhere is fine, and so on. So all these issues come into play. But genders, but I do think that it is nonetheless important to point out that um, 
when you look at an institution like the Senate and you look at how the health care bill was drafted mm-hmm. in the Senate with not one woman on the secret committee right. uh, that that spent drafting it and including provisions that, you know, essentially um, could, because Medicaid and Medicare are disproportionately affect women because women live longer and more women are poor, mm-hmm. um, cutting programs like this or reducing the rate of growth disproportionately affects women, not to mention access to contraception, not to mention access to abortion, not to mention uh, health care service promoted by Planned Parenthood. So a lot of these a lot of these provisions were drafted by men. Right. Um, and, and it's something and, that we talk about all the time of the danger of when there's only one viewpoint in the room. Exactly. So whether that room is intentionally um, denying the underrepresented group opportunity or whether it's just not dawning on them, it's the same outcome. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And and so I think I, I think what I see as my role is to look at some of these contradictions and think them through in a responsible way. I mean, you you mentioned earlier the Bill Cosby trial. I mean, one of the fascinating things for me in looking at that was, all right, we have a long history of trying to figure out a fair way to both bring justice to women who are sexually assaulted and make sure that the constitutional presumption of innocent until proven guilty is fairly enforced in the courts. And so what is, are, are women in some way served in many sexual assault cases. So you can take this lens and apply it to a whole range of issues, but looking systematically at whether women are served or well or poorly by a range of institutions is part of what I want to do. And for the same part, I actually look at men. I mean, I wrote a piece before the election that I really feel proud about because it turned out to be prescient, but it was all about um, the plight of men blue-collar jobs shrinking, um, health care outcomes that are worse than, for many men than for women, um, mental health issues. So I, I don't see gender equaling always women, although I do spend a lot of time thinking about them. <laughs> no, I have to say in reading the each article one after the other, um, one of the things that's impressed me and caused me to at least try and think differently and be more expansive and get out of my own echo chamber is the way that you've in a very disciplined way talked about um, men's experiences as well as women, the women who, um, like you said, didn't vote for Trump, who did vote for Trump and had their reasons, but also the different ways that, say, um, Kellyanne Conway and Hillary Clinton are being treated that's surprisingly similar. Um, oh, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, that was a piece where, you know, uh, I got a lot of uh, angry uh, reader mail. But what I wrote about was that isn't it interesting to see that whatever the ideology of the woman she is criticized in completely parallel sexist terms. So I looked mm-hmm. at sort of internet memes about Kellyanne Conway and Hillary Clinton, and they were like almost identical. I mean, you know, the hair, the the appearance, you know, oh my God, she looks so ugly because she's been out on a bender. Or right. I was just completely <laughs> struck by how women, as well as men, mind you, were using this kind of critique of 
both Kellyanne Conway and Hillary Clinton. And so I wanted to call it out wherever it came. And a lot of people were like, how can you defend Kellyanne Conway? Well, first of all, I am not a partisan person. I'm a journalist. And it's not about defending or attacking anybody. It's about pointing out that sexism is bipartisan. So this insightful and balanced voice that we're hearing is Susan Shearer. She's a senior correspondent and editor on gender issues for The New York Times. And I am Laura Zarrow here on Women at Work on Business Radio at Sirius XM 111. So, Susan, in this article, part of what um, I loved how you gave language to something, that um, we tended to malign women um, that we didn't want to see in power. Um, and we, like you said, assigned them um, talked about them in terms that we would never talk about men, that these women were either derided as being shrews or sluts, and with some implication that it's her gender, it's her femininity that's being used to control men. And it was on both sides of the political spectrum. Right. You, you do really see it uh, because because society's been so shaped by this. And so women and men fall into that pattern of critique. And, and I just wanted to point out, you know, you have to pay attention. I, I and, and see, I, I did a little piece, it was a, a less ambitious piece, but it was about sort of attacks on Nancy Pelosi. And I did look at attacks that were interestingly similar on like Michelle Bachman or Sarah Palin. You know, whether you like any of these people or you hate them or you think they're the devil or you don't, um, a lot of the terms of the critique are often the same. And they're often in loaded ways that are less applied to men. I mean, some people wrote me after the Kelly and Conway piece and said, you know, well, we, we do write about men's appearance in some ways. We mock Donald Trump's ties or his hair. And, you know, that's true. But we don't do it in the systematic wholesale way for men that we do no. for women. And as a, a point, had um, when he turned to the first lady of France and said, you look like you're in great shape. If she had said, well, you don't, why don't you exercise? There would have been disorder worldwide. <laughs> she could never address him with direct candor about his body the way that he felt licensed to about hers. I think that's very true. And, and so embedded in this, it's not just um, the way that we gain power by making other people feel small. You know, I, I, it's something that I learned when my daughter was two years old. That was what happened on the playground, that when people yeah. felt scared or weak, particularly little kids, but I see it with grownups, that's when their most awful selves came out because it made them feel powerful. But there's a way that by um, turning women into objects, whether they're being praised as objects or being derided um, for feminine traits, it's taking power away from them. I think that's I think that's absolutely right, and I, and I and that's why I think that this whole question of how you attack women and in what terms you do is so important to examine, and 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 I agree with your framing here. It's there are ways of undermining women um, that are used widely in society, even sometimes by people who think that they otherwise like to empower women that we need to examine. And I think, you know, to bring it back to the corporate world, it was very interesting for me in these interviews that I did. There are a lot of very well-meaning men and women in corporate America who very sincerely want to uh, promote women. And then you get into these very subtle questions of, I remember I spoke to Ellen Coleman, who was a former CEO of DuPont, and she had done a study at DuPont where they found that women tend to be promoted in a three-year period, but men in a two-year period. And she said, it wasn't overt, like she's too aggressive, she's horrible. It's like, so girl, per, woman, person, 
not quite ready, mm-hmm. but man person was somehow perceived as ready. These are the subtle, the subtle kinds of things that we have to sort of shine a light on and examine so that because a lot of the barriers that women experience are more subtle than some of the blatant things we've also seen. Yes. And they are they are carried out by well-meaning people who aren't always aware that they are making those assumptions. Right. Those unconscious biases that permeate the pipeline to leadership are affecting women all over the globe. One of, one of the things that's fascinating about the reporting that you've done is it's bringing into high relief where um, these issues aren't just affecting us in our every day that we all experience, but particularly in these issues of power and how um, policy, politics, business is operating at the highest levels and the role of perception in it. Um, And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how these issues of power, you see them playing out also across race and class. Yeah, I think this is very important. And if I were to make a self-criticism, I want to tangle more directly with race and class. Well, I, I think I've done more with class than with race, but I, I really believe that um, it's very, very important. You know, people's experience isn't just about gender, right? It's gender plus race, or gender plus class plus race. And so we, we need to see how these things interact. There's this term intersectionality, mm-hmm. which I, you know, was uh, coined by uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, a great scholar. I don't tend to use it as much in my articles because I know a lot of people don't know the term, but I think this idea that you have multiple experiences and they are filtered by many things and that gender is only one of those things and that sometimes these things layer on top of each other. For example, in the corporate world, as we know, if it's hard for women, it's harder for women of color. Right. Um, so I think that we have to be very, very alive to the ways in which all these factors intersect. and. Joan Williams, uh, who's a professor at the uh, law school at Berkeley, has written some very trenchant observations about the way that a lot of Americans are class clueless and the way that they speak about class in very, very contemptuous and offensive ways. And so I think, again, we saw that played out during the election. We saw that um, we see it playing out as the Democratic Party tries to figure out what to emphasize, you know, economic issues. How do you do that in a way that um, is includes the white working class, but doesn't exclude um, the rising American electorate of of different demographics who the Democrat, Democratic Party believes it needs to continue as part of its core support. So there are all kinds of ways that this is playing out, and it's very important not to that that. that gender not get dissociated from these other components. And I want to come back to something that you were talking about earlier, which is the Cosby trial. Because in, A, this is an ongoing issue. It's still, you know, we still don't know what's going to happen yeah. when he's retried. But it seems to me like all of these things are at play here, that yeah. we have a man on trial who's both black and extremely affluent. Um, a white woman is the accuser, um, a mixed jury. How do you see these issues of power and protection of fundamental rights playing out in this this particular case? Yeah, I think the Cosby trial was... So interesting because it all of these issues really came together. And I, for example, a, a number of people I spoke with, it didn't get into my eventual article, but it was taken up by some others. My wonderful colleagues, Wesley uh, Morris and Jenna Wortham, talked about this in a podcast. Now, here is a man who was 
put himself forward as a role model for African Americans and for a certain segment of African Americans, he was seen as an enormous source of empowerment and and excitement. He was an enormously important he role model to millions very, of people. And, and he put his money, he and his wife supported all kinds of causes and championed all kinds of issues. And at the same time, he also became seen by a younger generation of African Americans as a scold, uh, as someone who lectured them. So there was a, his, his relationship was quite complicated, but he was a huge figure. So you have this kind of America's daddy, you know, mm-hmm. figure, um, who was the, you know, the benevolent patron of this, you know, middle to upper middle class family, um, somehow being now seen as this predator with more than 30, 40, 50 women coming forward and describing a pattern of being drugged and assaulted. And it was so at odds with this public image. And some of these women were black, but some of them were white. And of course, in the trial itself, the principal accuser was white. So you had the old racial dynamics of the very fraught relationship between black men lust after white women and all of those issues that have plagued the American system. You have a guy who's affluence and celebrity arguably protected him and intimidated these women from coming Mm -hmm. forward or from being believed when they came forward. So it was extremely complicated. And then you had the whole question of our criminal justice system has a very high standard of proof. And it is very difficult in a he said, she said situation without other witnesses, um, women struggle with credibility issues. So all these things came together in this one trial, and and I think that it's one reason it was so fraught, so charged, so complicated, so difficult to parse. Indeed. And also, one of the, I think, the real contributions you made with your article is when you talked about things, you also pointed out that um, our criminal justice system um, has two components that are actually quite important, but because of how they're applied in this case... um, it's un- it's discomforting. It may not create justice at the end. And one is the presumption of innocence, and the other is the burden of proof. That's exactly for right. something where there is no proof, and that these were are two values that are core that we're not giving up on. But we have not, as a society, found functional ways to deal with them. Yeah, I think I think this is you know in the sexual assault cases, in rape and and sexual harassment cases, it's. It, it really is a, a real tension between a, a core constitutional protection. And I think some of the experts and legal scholars I talked to had some had some optimism that although we're not there, there has been some progress. In other words, there used to be an infamous charge, instruction that a judge would give the jury sort of saying, you know, in cases where there are no witnesses, um, you know, it's very easy to lie about what happened. You know, so judges used to be much more prejudiced against women. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, But at the same time, the experts pointed out that we still have a lot of difficulty really understanding what trauma does to memory, really understanding how police investigators and detectives could more properly question mm-hmm. women so that we don't get into a situation where they're presumed to be lying and you have to catch them in an inconsistency. And, you know, so there are many, many things that can still be done to improve the system and, and have a chance at a fair outcome. But this tension, I, I mean, several scholars said to me, 
baked into the presumption of innocence is the idea that we are willing to let the guilty go free rather than, you know, have the innocent to imprison the innocent, right? right? So there are these fundamental conflicts, and these are all things that you're navigating and helping us understand better. With the few minutes that we have left, where are you going next with your work on this? What are the things that you've become curious about? Well, you 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 hinted at one. I want to continue exploring this question of, did the 